This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Leroy Butler, newly Hall of Famer, Class of 22. It is a touchdown for Leroy Butler. Holy cow, and the fumble recovery. And the Packers go up 20 to nothing. And you listen to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two podcast. I don't think I need to remind you, but we've got Memorial Day coming up here on Monday, or as we call it here in New England, the unofficial opening of summer. Now, here in New England, as Ian knows, we welcome it, A, because, uh, well, it's a signal that warmer days are ahead, and B, at least this year, we have a Memorial Day parade for the first time in three years. So, Ira, I'm going to ask you in Tampa, I mean, you have a Memorial Day parade there, and, and if you do, are you the Grand Marshal? <laughs> Clark, the only parade that they're talking about in Tampa is for the Tampa Bay Lightning in about three <laughs> weeks because they're halfway, Joe, uh, on, on their way to a third straight Stanley Cup. And we know that the Bucks won the Super Bowl and the Rays are awfully good. So, Joe, we, we call ourselves a, a championship city here. And uh, Canton's got a way to go to match that, Mr. Hardy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think you got a little help from a club there in town. That's what I understand, at least for the Florida Panthers. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so I, getting back to Memorial Day, I know we make a lot of, uh, of Memorial Day because of parades and picnics and, and, and maybe the Cincinnati Reds losing another series maybe this year. But it, it means much, much more. Um, because it's it's a sacrifice that millions of Americans have made over the years in armed conflict, and I know that well. I was the, I uh, am and was the son of a uh, career military officer in the Marine Corps who fought in World War II, um, Vietnam, and Korea. So um, means a lot to me. And, and I know we touched on the military in April on the 18th anniversary of Pat Tillman's death, but we're going to focus on it again today because well because this is Memorial Day weekend. And um, I, Ira, looking at the history, there have been, from what I gather, 14 NFLers killed in combat serving the United States. We can, we can touch on that with Joe Horgan, who's our guest uh, a little bit later. But Pat Tillman, of course, was, was the last and latest. But before top Pat Tillman, there was an offensive lineman with the Buffalo Bills named Bob Kalsu. Now, a lot of people don't remember or know who Bob Kalsu was, but I certainly do in Buffalo. So Bill's 1968 Rookie of the Year. He was killed in Vietnam in July of 1970. And he was killed, sadly, just hours before his wife gave birth back home to their son. And it was their second child. And as I said, my guess is that probably most of today's football fans don't remember Bob Kalsu, but I know somebody who does. And that's today's guest. Joe Horrigan, historian extraordinaire, Joe Horrigan, who is back with the hall as a senior advisor and back with us, thankfully, as a guest. And Joe, just a little background, Joe grew up in Buffalo. His father was a sports writer for the Buffalo Evening News, went on to become a PR director for the AFL and the Buffalo Bills. And Joe was a ball boy for those Buffalo Bills and Bob Kalsu was there. So Joe, it's a long intro, but first of all, 
thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you back. And um, and secondly, what can you tell us about Bob Kelso? Well, thanks, uh, Clark, and it's good to be back, first of all. But uh, Bob Kelso, you know, when I was uh, literally through that great system of recruiting called nepotism, uh, allowed to be the uh, ball boy with the Buffalo Bills, I was all of, uh, at the time, in, uh, it'd be 17 in 1968. And... Uh, when you're 17 and a rookie comes in and he's 21, 22, that's the difference between a kid and an adult back then, you know, right. just, you know, you weren't, you weren't peers. You were, he was Mr. Kalsu. I was Joe. And, uh, but the thing that I remember most about Bob is what a friendly guy he was. You know, a lot of rookies, you know, obviously didn't have time to worry about the ball boy. They're worried about getting, making a team and getting a job and so on. But uh, Bob was one of those guys that was just in, in my eyes, a quiet, friendly guy. Now, if you talk to his teammates, he was anything but quiet in the sense he was a prank. He loved to joke around. But obviously, I saw him in a more, you know, if you will, the professional level. I'm watching him, you know, try, try to make a team. And the, uh, making the team at that time for him, you know, he was backing up Hall of Famer uh, Billy Shaw and Joe, Joe O'Donnell. They were two guards. And back in the day, that's, you only had one uh, backup. So he was, you know, you know, getting a chance to replace two legends in Buffalo, and but Billy's obviously in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So he had his task cut out for him, and he was an eighth round draft pick. And and that eighth round doesn't reflect what you know the uh, what the team's interest in him was. It was really because of the fact that they knew he had uh, compulsory military service coming up. Uh, he had been in the ROTC and had signed, you know, signed to uh, serve his country. So, you know, like, unlike a lot of other athletes of the day, not just football players, but athletes in general, you know, they tried to, they use the um, army reserves or join reserve units or, or whatever it might be. And some actually had deferments due to whatever reason. Uh, uh, Bob was committed and he did that while he was in Oklahoma. You know, he made that commitment and uh, was, you know, you know, going to, you know, serve his country. And, and anyway, the AFL teams, the NFL teams drafting at that time uh, knew that. But Buffalo decided to take a chance, drafted him in the eighth round. And uh, he really, I, I don't even know that I can say he, he surprised them. They shouldn't have been surprised because he, coming out of Oklahoma, Chuck Fairbanks, who was his coach, just raved about him. And, you know, that was the, you know, the kind of risk you were willing to take. This, you know, this kid could play, maybe he'll have to do his military service and then come back. Well, that was absolutely the plan. Well, as it turns out, you know, he earned a starter's role after uh, Billy or, or Joe. I forget which one. It was Joe. You know, one, one of them was that Joe went down with an injury and uh, he got a chance to play. And uh, honestly, he lived up to every expectation that, that they had for him and actually was uh, named the team's um, most valuable player as a rookie or rookie of the year. I'm sorry. So, you know, the, that was all, you know, kind of. As, as expected. What really wasn't expected, however, is what happened after that. And that's when he uh, went to uh, boot camp to start his compulsory service and uh, uh, was a lieutenant and uh, was sent to Vietnam and into uh, 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 a really, really hot spot where he was on uh, uh, Ripcord Firebase or Firebase Ripcord. Right. Which was, right. But, uh, you know, it was, you know, from there on, it was just uh, a, a nightmare for him and everybody else serving at that time. They were a small unit holding a mountaintop. It was uh, using that position as defensive fire for troops on the ground. 
So it was a, you know, it was a very, very um, challenging uh, situation for him, but, you know, definitely up to the, up to the uh, task. But in any case, as, as we know, he was uh, killed in action there, but the, the whole story behind it and the circumstances and the timing are, are what really make it kind of the sad all America story, if you will. Right. You know, it uh, doesn't have that happy ending that we all often have, uh, or I think we have when we um, make or tell these types of stories, but one is a very tragic ending. Joe, what's your favorite memory of him as a Bills player? Do you have a favorite story of him as a well, Bills player? Well, you know, the, the thing was, it was more, you know, the, as a rookie coming in, you know, you're looking at rookies and, and most of them, as I say, even to the ball boy, they're just nervous. You know, they're, they're, you know, they don't know where they are and what their, what their expectations are, but he was one of these guys. And, and this is what I did remind, remember most about him was he was so well-liked by all, not just the rookies, but the veterans, they warmed up to him right away. You know, that wasn't always the case. This is back in the days when they had hazing and everything else. Yeah. So he was kind of one of these, um, and I keep saying quiet leader, but he was quiet as I could see him. But I guess that really wasn't the case, you know, that in his you know, re more relaxed environment. But, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't intimidated by anything. You know, he just was there and, you know, did his job. And, you know, most of the rookies were, you know, yes or no, sir, and, and worried about, you know, making the right moves and all that. He just seemed naturally comfortable. Uh, and some of the, you know, players that, you know, the warm relationships with, you can see the camaraderie right, right away. Joe, I got a question about um, Cal Sue's entrance uh, into, into the military uh, at that point. Joe, what are the circumstances when he was sent to Vietnam in terms of, Joe, did he have any leeway? Could, could he have gotten out of it? Could he have declined? It's a, it's a really good question, Ira, because, quietly I think a lot of guys did you know I, I um, you know I know guys that teams helped them out and got them you know more cushy jobs if you will working you know on a, on a stateside base maybe in special services or or things like that where they were kind of protected uh, Paul Horning used to come home on leave and play you know uh, it, it, um, it wasn't unusual and a lot of guys you know through whatever means you know obviously they're coming out of college where they had deferments but some, you know, got medical deferments, even though they were playing pro football, which sounds, you know, bizarre that they could. But, you know, when you talk about the types of injuries they're coming out with, you know, bad knees and feet or, feet or whatever it might be, that, uh, you know, obviously legitimately gave them deferments. But Bob never, you know, uh, tried any of that. And, and, you know, after the fact, there was stories about how some of his friends had encouraged him to try to, you know, um, make that move with the team, get some help from the team to say, hey, can you find a reserve unit to send me with or help me with or whatever? But he didn't, he didn't try any of that. And that was kind of his mantra is the, he had made an, he had made a, uh, a you know, a, a promise to serve and he was going to do it. And that's a very tough decision under any circumstance, but he's a, you know, a young married man with a baby daughter. So it was equally difficult. I should say equally difficult, even greater uh, challenge for a young man to be facing at that time. And you knew at that time, this is, you know, 1968, 69, uh, that's the height of the Vietnam War. You know, it, uh, uh, you know, uh, I can identify, you know, I was uh, the following year in the draft lottery. So you knew how divisive it was, you know, guys were looking for college deferments, trying, you know, the, you know, there was you know, unrest in the streets with, you know, anti-war movement. And, and, and as we all, you know, learn after the fact that, you know, this was, 
you know, kind of the most unpopular war ever fought, and yet he was uh, probably going to, you know, live up to that obligation, however, whatever his personal feelings were. And Joe, speaking of, of family that he left behind, um, you know, it's it's been more than five decades. Uh, I don't know if you know, Joe, but how, uh, is his wife still with us? And what about the kids? Well, the last I heard, and, and the, the Buffalo Bills honored him, it's got to be more years ago than I than I recall, but uh, it was with under the new ownership. They did do a, a service at the stadium in which uh, Bob Jr. was there, and I believe his sister was there. Uh, his wife, Jan, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think he's remarried. Uh, but I had a chance to meet the whole family in 1977. Uh, Bob Curran, then with the Buffalo News, the columnist, uh, really embraced the story about Bob and felt that the Hall of Fame should somehow recognize him. So I was new here in 77, so he called me because of our Buffalo connection, and we worked it out where we did honor the family here, and uh, they presented us, the Bills presented us with a plaque honoring Bob, and we had it hanging here for, for many, many years, and then it was incorporated into an exhibit we did on called Football in America um, about all of the men who had served in the military uh, that had also played in the NFL. But at that point in time, I you know, met his wife, Jan, for the first time, his daughter, Jill, and Bob Jr. And, you know, they were, they were as nice. You could see, you know, that this was not just unique to, to Bob, uh, his, his personality. They were all this just wonderful family that, uh, and unfortunately, his daughter and son, really, they, were all, they didn't know their dad. So, you know, they were, you know, uh, kind of the mixed emotions that go with that, you know, that they lost their father before they ever had a chance to know him. So it was a very emotional day when we honored him here, but uh, what a great family they, they were. Our speaking, we were speaking with the Hall of Fame's Joe Horrigan on the eye test for two, and we're talking about Bob Kalsu, a former Buffalo Bills star who was killed in Vietnam in 1970. And Joe, uh, do you remember when you first heard that Bob had passed away or was killed? Well, yeah, you know, obviously in Buffalo, you know, we we heard it as soon as it, you know, um, you know, was made known, and, and that was probably more uh, or better known at the time in Buffalo because of the uh, circumstances. But yeah, I do remember it, and uh, it was you know an emotional thing for the team. There was still a lot of his teammates were still there, obviously, and uh, it was it was again. Uh, we, again, we have to put it in perspective, you know, the, of the era, you know, with the Vietnam War, it seemed like we were having, hearing nothing but tragedies. And this right. was, you know, another one that put an exclamation point on the city of Buffalo and certainly the, knowing a lot of the folks that knew him, uh, that made it, you know, a little more difficult. Joe, is he, is he remembered in Buffalo today? Is if I Yeah, he's on their wall of fame. And, he is. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's, you know, Buffalo is a, is a, you know, as you guys know, uh, a really hardcore loving, you know, city as we've just seen recently with the tragedy that went on there. And, uh, you know, they embraced their own and, and Bob will be forever remembered there. I'm sure of that. Joe, I can't let you go without asking you a couple of questions about our beloved Paul and Canton. Um, Joe, talk a little bit about, and I'm going to speak personally, you know, I might have to judge a, a player that played in, in uh, 1938 uh, and a lot of us, uh, you know, my age, Joe, advanced age, Joe, but we never saw these guys. And to me, that makes it difficult. Some fans are screaming, why didn't these guys get in in 1963? Uh, some, when they, you know, the, the voters saw these people. Um, 
Joe, talk about how, how difficult the task it is to, to judge players you, you never saw play. Yeah, it's not only a difficult task, Ira, but let me first, and I'll try to make it succinct, but, you know, how that could happen that a player could be, you know, fall through the cracks, as we like to say. But if you think about it, in 1963, the selection committee was going back and looking at players from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they had a lot of people to look at, but there were the obvious choices. So their task the first couple of years is pretty easy, you know, in the sense of just pecking order of which of the greats of the game up to right. that point they would select. Well, what happened then is obviously as we moved into the early 70s, you know, they kind of leapfrogged some of the eras in the sense that they were now looking at players who had played in as recent as 70, uh, you know, if it was 1975. But they, they, the group of people that were coming in were just outnumbering the guys that were still being considered. So it was a difficult task to weed through. Now, the other thing to remember, and, and folks don't really appreciate this all the time, but the selection committee has changed over the years, obviously. The same guys couldn't be here as were there then. But those guys that were in the early years, we had the geographical selectors were the, probably the most important element because we didn't have 24-7 network television covering the NFL. So selectors from Baltimore, John Stedman, knew the Baltimore Colts inside out, but didn't know nearly as much about, let's say, the, you know, the Washington Redskins because he saw them only when they played the Baltimore Colts or if there was happened to be a national TV game. So, you know, their, their, their body of work of the selectors was focused on a specific team. So they were constantly, you know, jockeying to get their guys in, you know, as, as happened still, but not to the degree it might have done then and there were fewer of them to, to begin with and there were fewer teams to be looked at then and as the nfl and the afl merged all of a sudden you've got you know twice as many teams to consider obviously more than twice as many players because the rosters were larger just the pool got so full that it was hard to go back and look at those players that they knew were candidates but over the years because they didn't get into the room as we like to say kind of got forgotten and left behind and they're more often than not linemen, offensive or defensive linemen, not the quote, uh, quote unquote, skilled position players. So that's kind of part of it. But now the challenge that comes in with you guys as selectors um, to now go back and look at these guys, it's a lot of, you know, and I say this and I say it and not because I'm talking to two of you, but I mean it. The real historians of this game over the years have been the journalists who have written about them. So we have to go back and trust a lot of what we read uh, we have to go back and trust a lot of what we can have comparative analysis to. And we have to go back and at the hall, we have to try to make this clear as to you know, why some of these guys fell through the cracks. And did they really indeed fall through the cracks in the sense that they continued to be uh, on the list of nominees? It's just that they didn't get into the room. So there's all those challenges in front of you, but I think the historical um, uh, evidence is still out there. I think we have a lot of good historians of the game now who look at it more thoroughly than it probably was done in the earlier years because it was, like I say, it was too much or too easy in the sense of picking the very obvious Hall of Famers from that, that era. And Joe, give me some of your uh, relatively early impressions uh, of your new president, uh, Jim Porter. How well did you know him, uh, Joe, before he got this job when he was with the newspaper in Canton? And uh, what's his vision for the Hall, Joe? 
Yeah, Jim has got great vision, and I was so happy when he called me to invite me to come back to the Hall of Fame. I, I was not considering that it had been off my radar. I was not had no intention of ever coming back as an employee, certainly as a, any way I could help. But, but uh, I'd been retired for two and a half years when I got the call. Uh, when he was named president, he asked if I had to consider unretiring. I had to think about it for three or four seconds and then uh, uh, responded, of course, I'll come back. I, I really didn't think he meant full time at the time he asked me, but nonetheless, it all worked out. But I knew Jim, um, you know, not only uh, from his previous uh, life as a newspaper publisher, um, but uh, it, was, it wasn't just, you know, the Ken repository. He had uh, nine different newspapers out, outlets that he was a publisher for. So he's uh, had a vast experience in both the, you know, the journalism world, but also in the business world, which made him really a good candidate for this position. And uh, he had, uh, when I had retired, he was on our board of trustees. And then after I retired, he was on both our board of trustees and took a uh, staff position as well. So, you know, you couldn't get a better, better person for the, the spot. And, uh, you know, the thing that I like most about Jim that I've known for, from his newspaper life and the Hall of Fame life is that he's got uh, integrity with a capital I. And that's, that's what drove me to really coming back. I felt very comfortable working for him and um, certainly glad I did. We feel comfortable working with him too, Joe, because we've had him on here three times already in seven months or eight months. We love having him on here. And, and, and you were glad to be back. We were delighted to have you back. You had two and a half years. Come on back, Joe. It's great to have you back. Hey, uh, last, last question, going back to the beginning here, since we were talking about Bob Kalsu, it's been written in some places that he was the last or the only, I'm sorry, the only U.S. pro athlete killed in Vietnam. But it turns out that's not the case. And we were talking about that before this program started. You can enlighten our listeners on that, if, if you will, please. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a odd story, Clark, because it's uh, very similar circumstances, yet very different. Uh, there was a gentleman named Don Steinbrunner who played for the Cleveland Browns in 1953. He was a uh, guard, and um, uh, yeah, like Bob Kalsu, he had made a commitment in the, through ROTC while he was attending school that he would have a military obligation as well. Uh, so at the end of his rookie year in 1953, he went to fulfill that obligation and decided to make a career of the military. He was in the Air Force. He was a pilot. So he stayed in the military. And then in 1968, while flying a mission, he was wounded uh, in gunfire and was you know, given the opportunity as, you know, having been shot, that he could take an easier job, get out of the you know, line of fire, so to speak. And he refused citing exactly what we knew, uh, you know, was happening there in, in Vietnam at that time, young men serving with very little training, you know, to, you know, get into this type of uh, warfare. And he said, no, I, I, I can't do that. I'm going to stay. And, you know, I'm more seasoned. I can do what I do, you know, better than any young kid coming in. And uh, unfortunately, his next uh, mission up, he was shot down and killed. So this was in 1968, um, uh, just, you know, a year before Bob and is, or, uh, I'm sorry, he was 67 uh, in uh, July of 67. And the way we, we, we were made aware of it was his daughter had actually contacted the hall in 2005 after reading another article about Bob. And, and I, I received the call and I, <laughs> I thought at first it was just an irate you know, caller saying, she said something to the effect of, you know, I'm getting tired about reading about Bob Kelso being the only person, she said, that was killed in Vietnam. And i thinking that it was kind of a silly remark. Why would she say that? And I started saying, well, ma'am, you know, and I'm trying to be politically correct. You know, lots of folks, you know, gave their life for their country. She goes, no, no, no. 
uh, I said the, att the attention of Bob is because he was a professional athlete and it draws attention to that machine. Well, my father was a professional athlete. He was a professional football player. I said, oh, 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 I didn't realize you were saying that. You know, she goes, my father played for the Cleveland Browns in 1953. And she went on to tell me the story. And of course, you know, stunned us. This was in 2005. So uh, we, um, long story short, we, we stayed in touch and we invited her and her brother to come to the Hall of Fame for what is now an annual event we do here celebrating Vietnam or Vietnam, celebrating Veterans Day. And we asked them to attend this service. And unbeknownst to us, when they came, uh, she presented us with uh, Bob's Cleveland Browns uh, sideline jacket. And then her brother came up and really brought the house down when uh, he presented us with her, his father's purple heart. And they were both incorporated into an exhibit we then created, recognizing those who served uh, in the military and played in the NFL. Great story, Joe Oregon. Thanks so much for the time and welcome back to the hall. Wait, wait a minute, you, Clark. You were wait missed. A minute, Clark. I, <laughs> I got one more. Wait, you I said you more. were finished. You said you were out of gas. I got one more for Mr. Oregon. I got to get this out of Joe. Joe, quickly. Um, I'm going to ask you about a guy named Daryl Pasquale LaMonica, Joe. And if anybody knows this story better than you, I don't know who it is. Joe, he, he makes four starts in his first four years for your beloved Buffalo Bills. Then he gets traded. Yep. Joe, over the next three years, he goes 36, four, <laughs> and one. Now, Joe, the Raiders were stocked with great players. Yep. They were, no question about it. Joe, did you have any idea, and I mean any, before that trade that this guy was going to be special? And we just lost him recently. Yep. Yeah, you know, funny, uh, in Buffalo, he was more known for his running. <laughs> he, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, you got to remember, Buffalo had Jack Kemp at the time, who was a very good quarterback. Uh, and the LaMonica story, you know, kind of was Oakland, and this was the AFL, you know, teams were helping teams out, helping each other out. And I think yeah. this is, I, I couldn't get this verified by anybody who would be willing to admit it. But I think they made Daryl uh, available to Oakland to give Daryl a chance to start somewhere, but right. also to give the Raiders a, a starting quarterback that they could rely on. And I don't think anybody from Buffalo had ever anticipated he'd become as successful as he was. But I do, I will tell you, uh, my father, as you mentioned, Clark was the team PR director. and uh, His first visit, advanced trip to Oakland after he, uh, after they signed uh, LaMonica, he was speaking to the Raiders Booster Club and he went to the podium and he started singing, All I want for Hanukkah is Daryl LaMonica. They regretted the move, I'm sure. <laughs> you have the second verse to that song? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so you're telling, us he was, he was, you're telling us he was the mad jogger in Buffalo, but the mad <laughs> bomber in Nolan? <laughs> he he was a terrific player. You know, Buffalo, people don't remember this, but, you know, AFL, they think of everybody was past happy teams and all that. The Buffalo Bills were designed more like the Green Bay Packers. It was yeah. three yards in a cloud of dust. They were a running team. Uh, you know, so, you know, Daryl was, you know, he, he could run. He, he played uh, in college. He was doing more running than passing in college. So uh, it was a natural for them to, you know, to bring him in. True story. I've got an autograph from Daryl LaMonica when he was at Notre Dame. Whoa, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote me a nice letter. It's really cool. Um, Joe Horgan, thanks again for the time. And uh, great to have you back in, in Canton. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you this summer. Good thanks, enough. Joe. All right. See you. I'll see you, Clark. You got it. Um,
Ira, that was Joe Horrigan, who I love speaking to, a great historian. Um, but you know what? As I mentioned, as a son of Marine officer uh, who was in three wars, feel really strongly about the military and really good to hear him talk about someone like Bob Kalsu because you and I are of the same vintage. And, and Ian, I don't think knows that much about the Vietnam War era, but it was a really turbulent time in this country. And those who were drafted, boy, they were doing, uh, I, I know in college, there were guys who were doing anything they could to get out of it. And here's a guy who said, hey, I'm going over, you know, I'm going over there. That's um, exactly right, Clark. I think one of the most interesting parts of the story is had Cal Sue wanted to uh, go in that direction, Clark, he could have yeah. got out of it. He could have got out of it. You hear oh, that, Art? Wait, wait a minute. Is somebody somewhere, Clark? Uh, you're yeah, it's me. Where, where were you? Yeah, it's me. Uh, yeah, I was in Buffalo. I was, I was in Buffalo, January 16, 1991. That's a few days before the AFC championship game, Bills versus the Raiders. You might have remembered that one, Ira. That was a 51 to 3 demolishing. Ooh. And we took a plane right after the game down to where Tampa, where the um, uh, Giants and the Bills played. But this had nothing to do with the AFC championship game. <laughs> nothing. No, it had more to do with another game that I went to that week. And I went to it with uh, Rick Goslin of the Talk of Fame Network, a colleague of ours, Hall of Fame voter. Um, it was the Red Wings and the Sabres hockey game at the odd. And it was won by the Sabres 5-3, so nothing really unusual there, except for this. Uh, we were in the upper deck, and, and they had video screens so that you could see replays. You know, it was really crude elementary replays. It was um, small screen. You looked up there, and you could kind of make out what was going on, except there was nothing of the hockey game on those screens. They were showing the the Gulf War, what was going on in the Gulf War in, in Iraq. And, and, uh, and, and it just was mind boggling. We're watching a hockey game and looking up at the screen above us and there are rockets going off and explosions. And it was like a video game. We're watching a war, you know, a half a world away. And yet we're at a hockey game. And it was the most sort of surreal experience. I thought, this is, this is a real disconnect. I don't get this. I've never been to a hockey game like that before. Or since or anything like that. Oh, let's just we tune into let's tune in. Oh, yeah, there's some explosion. Oh, they just blew up a building. Oh, did did the Patriots score? Uh, oh, weird. It's really weird. And Clark, knowing Goslin, like you and I do, he's probably screaming at the screen. Let me see that hashtag save again. Forget about that stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but he's a Red Wings fan. He was going crazy. Anyway, all right, got some final thoughts. Well, Clark, I'm, I'm very glad that you keep reminding us uh, uh, about uh, the military and the importance of it. And it doesn't hit home until you really start drilling down on the stories, Clark, and you're very good at it. So I got to give you some credit for uh, talking about Bob Kalsu because the average football fan, Clark, they don't know who he is and they should. Yeah, I wish the, the NFL would do more to recognize those guys from the past. We do a lot to recognize the military today, but I like Pat Tillman. I mean, honestly, we did something with Pat Tillman. I'd recognize him every year. I'd have some sort of event for the NFL every year. And I think that the Hall of Fame needs to do something, honestly, more than what it's done for the, the NFLers who've been killed in uh, armed combat. And as mentioned, there are 14 of them and Bob Kalsu was one of them. Anyway, that's going to do it. If you want to hear this or any other I test for two podcasts, just go to our website. What would that website be in? That would be fullpresscoverage.com. There you go. There's the originator, the Hall of Fame producer, Mr. Ian Glendon. Then you click on podcasts. Easy to do. Ira, you can do it right. Club podcast, just click you on. Go right to the, you go right to the eye test for two. There right. you go. You go right to the eye test for two. And if you can't figure that out, well, you know, check in with us next week because we'll be here. Thanks for listening.